Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Anthony Luzzato Gardner, the author of Stars with Stripes, the essential partnership between the European Union and the United States. Published in March by Palgrave Macmillan, this book is a unique guide to the opportunities and threats facing that essential partnership posed by the impending presidential election in November. What makes the book special is that Tony Gardner writes about a core range of bilateral policy topics like trade, data privacy, law enforcement, joint approaches to Russia and Iran, and energy security, but with deep inside knowledge of the issues and the players involved. This is because he served as the Director for European Affairs on President Clinton's National Security Council in 94 to 95, and then as President Obama's Ambassador to the European Union from 2014 until President Trump's inauguration in January 2017. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. Um, You were the 19th US ambassador to the EU, and to my knowledge, none of the others has written a book about the subject or or their experience in the job. Um, Although I suppose it's it's entirely possible your successor will write a book about something else. Um, Without Donald Trump's election four years ago, do you think you would have written a book at all? (laughs) Interesting question, no. Um, As I like to joke, it was a cheap form of therapy to me because I, I left the day Donald Trump uh, entered the White House. And I was worried then and became steadily more worried over the coming months and indeed years. And I started thinking uh, as I left, I went to the College of Europe and then to the European University Institute. And I started thinking, well, somebody should write a book that reminds people Uh, why the United States and the European Union have worked closely together for so long, under both administrations, by the way. And then pretty soon I decided, well, actually, that person should be me because, uh, you know, I I don't want to write an academic book. I want to write a book that is a perspective of someone from the trenches who's lived it uh, and who's breathed it for a long time. So that's why I did it. And and you, I mean... (laughs) Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, um, she once described famously the United States as the the indispensable nation. With your book subtitle, The Essential Partnership, were you trying to capture a a sort of similar concept? Well, I still think that, yes, the United States is in a unique position to lead. That certainly does not mean that the United States has all the answers and always behaves appropriately. And we've seen ample evidence to the contrary, in fact, during the last three and a half years, unfortunately. Obviously, the United States does make serious mistakes and sometimes jumps the rails. Um, But given its position, its power, its influence, its breadth, scope, um, we do have a unique ability to lead. And even critics of the United States, of which there are many, I think many of them would agree that a world that is uh, led by the Chinese or led by the Russians uh, would be a far, far grimmer, more dangerous 
inhospitable place. So, you know, I am confident, Tim, that uh, we will go back to, um, you know, we won't wind back the clock, but we will go back to the days when, yes, we believed in working with allies. Yes, we believed in working within the contours of uh, the rules and the institutions. Uh, true, I mean, track record wasn't always perfect, but we did believe in supporting, upholding uh, the basic institutions that we the U.S. and Europe built after the Second World War. So we, I think we will go back to those years, and there's a lot to be done. Yeah, in fact, you, you end the book by, by warning that the, as you say, like the f- third generation of the characters in Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks, mm-hmm. that the U.S. and the EU of today are in danger of, quote, gambling away their inheritance. Do you, as we, as we approach Election Day, do you, do you feel more or less reassured of that uh, of that warning not i'm sorry of that warning not uh being fulfilled well that's why i uh threw myself into the campaign tim i really wasn't looking to do it frankly i had been involved in a number of campaigns um both obama obama campaigns the extremely time consuming but when i saw what was at stake a lot is at stake and i honestly believe and i don't feel that I'm exaggerating. I feel the future of American democracy is at stake. And I think Joe Biden said it correctly. The soul of the country is on the ballot. Uh, And not only that, the future of whether or not we can deal with climate change, uh, the future of race relations in the United States, the future of whether we destroy or or undermine our allies in in a really fundamental way. So many things are at stake today in the ballot. I'm confident not just based on the polls, which often are wrong. I'm confident that Joe Biden stands a good chance of winning. But even if he does win, Tim, um, there is no illusion in the Biden camp. You know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working away on a number of uh, groups, policy groups, that there's no illusion that time will be short and pressure will be really high to prove the case to the American people, particularly, that the way of doing business, as I said, with allies, within the rules, within the institutions, is a better way than acting unilaterally and undermining those rules and institutions. That is going to be so important, because if we fail, should Joe Biden win, if we fail to make that case, I do believe that a more virulent, nasty form of demagogic populism could come back, and there we would squander the inheritance. Yes, I, I, in that respect, um, and tying this into the into the relationship with Europe, you you write that the experience of of Trump uh, and of Brexit actually um, have, as you as you say, served as a mighty vaccine against Euroscepticism. Uh, and as I was reading the book, I thought, actually, maybe they've done more than that. Uh, do you think that they? Um, and especially Russian interference in support of the American rights, have re-educated much of the American, European, and British left and centre-left um, about the enduring value of, the, of post-war democratic institutions like the EU, like NATO, like the Transatlantic Alliance. So do you think, in a sense, President Biden, if that's what we're going to see in, in January, is going to be pushing out a more open door than he would have done before uh, before the Trump experience? Well, I think there's a lot in what you say, 
because we were taking many of these things for granted, um, partly because of so many years that divide us between the events of the Second World War that, you know, often those ritual incantations, so to speak, of you know, the war and common values were greeted with collective yawns. But we're seeing just how relevant all of this is. Look, we just had armed uh, far-right uh, militias plotting to take hostage a governor of a major state in the United States. Now, if you told me that five years ago, I would have said absolutely impossible. If you had told me just one of the many thousands of things that Donald Trump has done or said, including his antics on the balcony of the White House, which frankly remind me of, um, you know, a tin pot uh, dictators around the world, I would have said it's impossible. Many of us were naive to him, including me, by the way. When, uh, when Obama was elected, we thought, well, this seals, you know, th this represents a final turning point in the United States in terms of race relations. We've overcome the ghosts of the past. And in fact, we have not. We're still on a very long journey. So all of these events, these street violence, uh, the, these antics, this far-right language, this threat of bringing out some of these groups onto the streets to contest an election. Mm. I remember, President Trump has said he has never refused to say for the first time in history that he would, represent, he would uh, recognize the results of a free and democratic election. Yeah. This is a wake-up call to a lot of people, not maybe to his core base, his really core base, but to a lot of Americans, I think it is scary. And we have to remember, um, and, and this is perhaps a positive wake-up, Tim, we have to remember that the United States is capable of slipping, like other countries around the world, into this, into this vortex. You know, as, as a kid in mm -hmm. high school, I would learn history about other countries and how they lost their democratic institutions. And I thought, well, that's all very well, but that applies to other countries. It could never happen here because the United States is somehow different. Our democratic institutions are stronger. And yet we're seeing some of our institutions buckle, not to collapse, but buckle under the strain. And my concern is that after four more years, I'm not entirely sure that our judiciary and our media and and our other restraints on executive power will actually be able to survive. Mm. Wouldn't you argue, though, um, or is there not a case for saying that the the weakest link in that respect has been has been Congress? That that the judiciary have largely held up. The media have certainly held up. Um, yes. Do, do do you think you're maybe not stretching the argument a little? Uh, by suggesting well, that the institutions have failed. So, so, so far, you're right. I think the, the judiciary has held up. But another four years of judicial appointments across the board, from the Supreme Court to the federal bench and so on, mm. things will look a bit different. And if the only, uh, the only means of uh, making those appointments is, you know, uh, fealty, to Donald Trump, I start getting worried uh, when people are appointed just because they uh, agree with a specific litmus test sent by this president. I start to worry. Uh, the media has held up even under harassment, under harassment, uh, and it shows great courage. So I, I, I really, um, I respect 
the, the members of the press who have held up under withering attacks. You're right, Congress, I'm very disappointed because this is not a partisan issue. When these issues, when, the, when these uh, topics are at stake, you know, the race relations and uh, the basic standards of decency for a president in the White House, I would have expected more members of the other party to stand up and say, this is simply unacceptable behavior from a president of the United States. And that is not a partisan statement to make. Too few members of Congress, both House and Senate, have actually done that on the Republican side. Yes. I mean, you said there that this, um, if Joe Biden is elected, it will be the, the reassuring people in, the, in uh, the existing institutions will be absolutely critical. And recently, apart from your book, I read John Bolton's um, uh, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, and there's a lot of surprising things in that book. But the part that really jumped out at me was was Trump's obsession with the 2% NATO uh, spending target and, and his refusal to get past the idea that the Europeans, uh, or, you know, in his mind, the Germans w- were not paying their dues, as he put it. You discuss this issue in the book uh, of European underspending and inefficient military spending. But do you think there's an understanding in Washington and in the European capitals that this issue must absolutely be addressed during the next four years or it could be terminal for NATO? Sure, there's an understanding of it. You know, this issue is not new. Donald Trump likes to pretend it's new. It's been discussed, not just discussed, but, you know, uh, pressed as a, as a very important issue by prior presidents, including Obama. And he, by the way, they did make some, some uh, uh, you know, progress, not enough, um, but made some progress with the European allies. But of course, it's not correct, not right, for Germany particularly to be spending well beneath the 2% threshold, when by increasing toward that threshold, they could make a material difference to European, not only spending, but its readiness. A couple of points I make in the book, Tim. Uh, first, it's not just the amount of spending, it's how the money is spent. And that's where also Europe really falls woefully short. And I I hope I don't pick on poor Belgium, a country I, I, I love. I've lived there for six years of my life, but it's an extreme case where 70% of the money it spends goes to pensions and salaries and sort of soft stuff, not on kit and things that are relevant for the battlefield. And when you start doing the math, as I did in the book, you end up with some just ridiculous numbers. So 1% of 550 billion GDP, roughly, you can do the math, 5.5, and of that 70% on pensions and salaries, of course, those figures make people in the United States extremely angry. And this fig- this will not go away as an issue, and I'm, I'm quite sure that Joe Biden would press this. Now, this, the second point, however, Tim, I have to make here. While this is an important topic, one has to see burden sharing in the round. I think I make this point also in the book. Now, Donald Trump sees the world always in totally black and white uh, ways. There's no gray anywhere. He doesn't consider that Europe does shoulder an outsized share of of burdens in areas like combating climate change in uh, dealing with uh, migration crisis. Where the, when the United States bears an undersized um, you know, burden uh, on those two topics, certainly under Donald Trump's watch. So I would just s- simply say this, look, uh, we should consider burden sharing as a much 
bigger concept than just how much money we spend on defense. Yes, and he, he he's constantly talking about how the EU has done nothing in Ukraine, um, which of course is uh, uh, the exact opposite of the truth. Um, I mean, you know, you know the people in Joe Biden's national security and foreign policy team. Um, if he wins in November, how much of a priority will repairing this relationship be compared to, say, dealing with China? And do you think he will commit heavyweight officials, i.e. not people like Sondland or or, or Ted Malik or whatever, to to this effort? Absolutely, yes. I have no doubt in my mind that, uh, you know, as you said, uh, I know the team, the foreign policy team, extremely well, some of them going back many decades, um, and I know Joe Biden, I've worked with him. Europe will be a priority. Uh, a priority because it is important uh, in of itself across all of the issues I describe in my book. So not just military, but you know, for, for trade, for, for 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 data privacy, for digital, for um, for energy security, for issue of sanctions and law enforcement uh, and climate change, so on, so on, a lot of issues. But also, you mentioned China because we need to work with our partners uh, above all the European Union to uh, leverage our joint influence with regard to China. And, you know, when we look at the priorities of the next four years, China is perhaps number one. Uh, and we will have to show real progress in getting the Chinese to change their uh, uh, behavior in some areas, uh, particularly in trade. And yes, I think it is doable. Now, the fact that we have spurned the European Union uh, in trying to, to do that, uh, meaning reforming the WTO and, uh, and getting the Chinese to uh, change some of their abusive trade behavior, is, is bizarre. Yeah. It's bizarre because there has been no understanding in this administration of the relevance, importance, and indeed power of the European Union in this regard. That is going to change day one, I guarantee you. One of the first things I think the administration will do, sit down with the European Union and say, okay, here's how we want the WTO to be reformed. Here are ideas. We've seen your ideas. They've been published in a white paper. Let's act in a coordinated fashion to get some of this done. Yeah. And I note though you say sit down with the European Union. Again, as you point out in the book, it's it, it it's not always easy to find out who to sit down with uh, at, the, at the European Union? Who, who would you prioritize in, in that kind of diplomatic effort? Well, look, there are some areas, as you well know, most of the listeners will know, that the, where the Commission, representing the EU, has sole power, competence in EU jargon, horrible word, but uh, sole power, trade is one of them. Um, and so it is, in fact, uh, you know, DG trade, that will be a core partner for us. Now, of course, some member states are going to be critical in this exercise. They're they're the obvious ones. But here it's the European Commission that is the partner. And I think it will be a willing partner uh, on trade and and reforming trade because they know just as well as we do. We have an opportunity in the next four years to save the system. And if we don't, it'll collapse because there'll be a growing sense that the rules are just not fit for purpose and the Chinese are just abusing them. Um, and th- then things fall apart, and we both face populist backlash. So it is super important. And by the way, there's a lot that we can do bilaterally, which I've written about. I've proposed the campaign, 
and I think we can do them in the first hundred days. Um, so yes, we're we're you know we're ready to go. We you know policies are ready for day one, first hundred days, first year. And if I could just just take, take a few more minutes, you know, there the are two core thoughts that are informing and shaping the work of all these working groups. The first is what is actionable, uh, fast, and meaningful. So no academic exercises, you know, pass muster here. We're not going to set up lots of new high-level working groups and institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what can actually be done quickly and is relatively uncontroversial? So I've done a number of papers identifying those areas with the EU. Second, how do we identify in concrete ways what a foreign policy for the middle class looks like, particularly in trade? And third, as I already mentioned before, more broadly, how do we make the case domestically to the skeptics about multilateralism that this is not shackling our power and our influence, but indeed is a way that can help us achieve our objectives. And by the way, this is a theme that I would like to see in this country, in the UK, spoken about more often. The idea that belonging to institutions and following the laws and belonging to association groups of nations somehow undermines your sovereignty is completely incorrect. You, I mean, your chapter on, on the TTIP, on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, is is particularly interesting, I think, not just in terms of the detail, but you give the impression that the whole project felt doomed, really, um, given the fact that European officials were saying one thing and politicians were saying another, and that President Obama, for many reasons, was quite focused on the TPP in, in, in Asia. First of all, is that is that a fair characterization of what you said? And secondly, what are the chances that TTIP gets revived under Biden? Well, Tim, it's a fair characterization indeed. Uh, it was too broad. We were too ambitious. Uh, we're not going to make that mistake again. So no, there's zero chance of resuscitating TTIP in its uh, old form. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes on both sides, and I described them in the chapter in, in some detail. Uh, but I remain hopeful that there are bits of that uh, agenda that can be implemented pretty quickly. And one of them is, not surprisingly, elimination of uh, tariffs on industrial goods trade, which is a significant number, a significant percentage. It leaves aside some of the very sensitive agricultural uh, line items. But that is economically meaningful. I think we can get it done. I think it's uncontroversial. I think, true, politically, we will need to see some uh, progress on agricultural uh, issues, particularly on the so-called plant and animal health and safety, the sanitary and phytosanitary provisions, uh, where we've been battling each other for sometimes decades with very little progress. It's, as I describe it, a hostage, hostage exchange exercise. Um, the EU understands uh, also that we will need to see some progress there. Uh, and I think we can. Um, there are other bits where I believe we can make some progress. Uh, some of the regulatory cooperation, uh, I think we can see progress, for example, on non-safety uh, aspects of auto, automobile uh, trade, um, uh, and a few uh, and a few other areas, but we need to scale it down dramatically and, and show we can make progress right away. Oh, and by the way, I, I think we can, we should, I think we can uh, resolve the Boeing Airbus dispute. Mm. Do you, 
do you would would you expect that to be done as a package or in as a number of different groups working on on different sectoral areas? Well, you know, the old idea of these things is you need to tie everything up in one big bundle. Um, but you know, the bigger the bundle, uh, I also see the bigger the the cross linkages uh, and the more delay. We really cannot afford delay. You know, if we win. I hope and believe we can sit down quickly with you, with, with the commission and say, look, um, literally the weight of history is on our shoulders um, and, and we got to get this stuff done. Um, so I, perhaps not you know, formally linked, but an understanding that we need to get uh, a number of things uh, accomplished. Um, and it would come, by the way, with, I'm pretty sure, lifting of these um, unilateral uh, sanctions uh, against Europe uh, on steel and aluminum and lifting of the counter sanctions. Those sanctions should never have been uh, implemented. They were implemented on bogus grounds. I think it's embarrassing for the United States to have done them to argue, as we did essentially, that imports of steel and aluminum uh, from our allies at a time of peace represent a threat to our national security. Now, the reason that's so dangerous, Tim, is that when you start engaging in these bogus pretexts and invoking national security when there really aren't true national security concerns, then surprise, surprise, other countries will invoke the same to achieve their own objectives. And in fact, Russia has done so, Saudi Arabia have done so, and perhaps other countries, I'm not aware. And therein lies the way of the jungle, very simply. Now, the belief that some Americans have that that's fine because we are the 600-pound gorilla and we will survive the best in the jungle is just wrong because we, like the UK, do actually rely on a world of rules and institutions for many things, not only our exports, but it's just wrong to say we can live in a jungle happily. And that's the case we need to show. And while you're doing these negotiations, would would you expect to do parallel negotiations with the UK um, and would you, would you attempt to try and, try and do broadly the same kind of negotiations to try and tie, to repair some of the damage of, uh, um, of the Brexit process? So I'm a believer in these negotiations. Now, I never thought they would get done in weeks or months or even a few years, as many pundits were saying after Donald Trump's election. Remember, there were many people who took to the airwaves and saying, we're going to get a big, bold, beautiful trade deal. It's oven ready. It'll be done. Nonsense. None of these people had ever seen a trade deal done. I don't think ever anyone had ever touched one. Honestly, it was so irritating to hear this. So here we are. It hasn't been done. Is it important? Yes. And I do think that you know, although the economic impact of this deal by our the studies done on both sides of the Atlantic shows it's not going to be terribly you know, significant, but it's important. It's important because we can do things in a U.S.-U.K. deal that probably are simpler than a U.S.-EU deal. I'm thinking of even recognition of some professional qualifications, potentially. Uh, I think a digital chapter could be uh, bolder or more ambitious than one with the EU for all the reasons that are I think obvious. Um, I think on you know, agricultural trade, we can probably go faster, although uh, we will be hemmed in in some aspects by the withdrawal deal, for example, with regard to geographical indications. But I think on the issue of, uh, you know, I'm not talking about hormone tr- beef, by the way, where there's a lot of 
opposition yeah. in the UK, but you know, potentially on GMOs, I think there is a great, greater relaxation in this country with regard to to uh, that. Um, and uh, you know, on promotion of small and medium sized enterprises and their exports across the Atlantic, there's there's lots that we can that we can do uh, that's uh, that's meaningful. Would you would you expect them to be done in parallel? And and for that, actually, do you um, would the USTR get a single fast track authority to do both, or in fact, would that be required? Well, it's interesting because you know this coming up for renegotiation in April, um, so that's a it's a major issue. Is would we be able to to wrap this up so quickly? You know, before April, that's a big question mark. Um, I, I just can't give an opinion because I'm not close enough to, to where it stands now. I'm somewhat skeptical because in you know, a new administration, you know, January 20th, it's going to take several months for the new team to get its you know feet under the table, and then then you have a new TPA. Um, so, uh, and that's a long exercise of negotiating with Congress right there. So, uh, you know, would we need uh, approval from Congress? My understanding is that we, um, for a, a for, uh, certainly a free trade agreement, we, we would. For something like eliminating tariffs uh, on industrial goods trade with the EU, uh, my understanding is that this could be done without um, but I'm not, I, I, that's my understanding. So uh, there are things that we can do without getting TPA. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I have one tangential question, but an interesting one, nevertheless, for me. Um, realistically, do you think a President Biden could make Vladimir Putin pay for his behavior over the last five years? I certainly hope so, Tim. Oh, the, the wonderful things that we could do. <laughs> wonderful things that we should have done. And it's one of the areas that I've was, I can even say disappointed that we didn't do. And these are sometimes things that are not always identified. Mm. And by that, I mean, not just these pinpricks of, uh, you know, travel bans or uh, asset freezes, which true for certain people are perhaps, um, you know, create, uh, create uh, problems. Uh, but much more than that, um, we can embarrass the hell out of him uh, by publicizing information about the depth of the cronyism and corruption in and around his circle. Uh, it, even during the Ukraine war, I'd made a, a proposal that the names of all the Russian soldiers uh, mm. who died fighting on Ukrainian soil be published because the, the Kremlin went to extraordinary lengths try to hide the fact that there were, in fact, Russian soldiers dying, fighting and dying on Ukrainian soil. I certainly hope we would consider all of the options, uh, and indeed he should pay. Uh, he has not only interfered in our elections, he's done much more than that. He's tried to do to, to not only sow discord and undermine our democracies, but I believe that this has been, this has been a campaign of targeted assassinations on, on uh, European soil, including in the, in the United Kingdom. Now, the fact that we have uh, engaged in such limited retaliation, I think, is fairly depressing, honestly, fairly depressing to think that we, to get, you know, the European Union has not been capable, together with the United States, of going much further. Now, I am heartened that the EU apparently is going to pass a form of the Magnitsky Act, 
that covers human rights violations. Um, mm-hmm. And it should go much broader. It shouldn't just be human rights violations. It should be, uh, you know, corruption, acts of corruption. We should be much more robust in our uh, response to the Kremlin. And do you, I mean, you talk about this several times in the book about uh, European reticence in dealing with Russia for uh, A, because he could switch the energy off at any any time, but B, the outsized influence he had in places like Cyprus, which as we've seen again during the uh, Belarus affair. But do you think that that, you know, with different um, different politics coming from Washington, that could embolden the Europeans more? Uh, over the next few years regarding Russia? Well, it's not going to be easy, for sure. I was a witness to that. There are always going to be reasons, different reasons, um, commercial reasons, as you say, or links, financial links with Russia. Uh, or in the case of Hungary, it's a fact that they've signed up to you know, uh, Russian help with their reactors and, and so forth. There are going to be always a host of, of, of different issues. But during the last four years, we've had a president of the United States who has gone to extraordinary lengths to defend, to explain Vladimir Putin. That's not, you know, that, that's certainly that's not going to continue. So a change of administration, as you say, in Washington will, I think, help to stiffen the backbones across most of the 27. Some will resist or find reasons not to, not, not to proceed. But um, uh, look, we were successful, Tim. Uh, in a way that exceeded most people's expectations in rolling out a, a you know, simultaneously a pretty tough package of sanctions uh, because of the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine uh, and uh, rolled it over every six months. Um, and that was despite all the issues we've just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Cyprus and Italy and you know, pleading for a special understanding for its oil company or Hungary or even France and even Germany. So it was across the board. Uh, we were successful in doing that. So we could probably be successful again. Actually, in that respect, do you think a change of leadership, uh, I mean, she's been incredibly successful and remains incredibly popular, but do you think a change of leadership in Christian democracy in Germany next year could make a difference in that respect? Well, certainly her passing, you know, Angela Merkel's passing from the scene uh, is a uh, critical is a, you know, event. Um, but, uh, you know, I have no reason to believe that, uh, Germany will in any way be a less important partner. It will still be pivotal. Uh, it will still be Berlin at the center as I witnessed and more so by the way, now that the UK is close to being out, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the reasons why incidentally, why the Obama administration thought that Brexit was not a good idea for the United States and for the solidity of Europe is that the UK served, if you will, as a third leg in a triad, uh, sort of unofficially. It was, everyone keeps talking about the Franco-German motor, but the UK was playing in a critical role. Now we have a, a duo, but a duo in which really one partner is so much more influential and economically more important. And that is not uh, a a healthy recipe long term. Uh, And I think even the Germans would recognize this. This is not the way that European construction was supposed to be. So Berlin will continue even more so to be at the center under new leadership. Yeah. Um, One final question. Um, 
you quote Tom Friedman as saying that putting the words European Union in a book title is as good as adding do not read. Um, <laughs> how's your experience been with the book this year? Well, you know, COVID hasn't helped him, so everything's done <laughs> virtually. Um, well, we're all doing a lot more reading. We're doing more reading, yes. Uh, and the events, I think, have raised uh, awareness, uh, concern about Europe to the front, you know, the front level. Uh, but of course, not being able to do book tours physically has been an impediment. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, I've done about 40 Zoom uh, book launches. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them pretty well attended. Uh, you know, I know great expectations about book sales because this is a pretty, you know, limited uh, uh, issue, at least for, for, for some. Uh, but I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it for the fact that we will have to rediscover at some point the importance of this relationship. And I hope the time comes sooner rather than later and that we do send, you know, qualified people. I'm quite confident we will to represent the United States and keep posts, including mission to the EU. Um, And that, you know, it's a record that reminds people, and this is important, it's not just a trade relationship. You know, many people think, ah, US, EU, we just talk about trade. And, you know, we we, we hit ourselves over the head about chlorinated chicken and so on. Well, no. Mm It's so much broader than that. And I try to capture that in the book. There's some areas that some people, even you know, relative experts might be surprised to know about. The depth of our relationship, for example, on law enforcement. I was surprised. I went to Europol three times under my watch. And I didn't know the depth of our relationship. Even on military issues, where some people would entirely dismiss the EU as completely irrelevant, you know, there's some important stuff going on. Uh, and, and so forth. So um, th- there's a lot to do. And we haven't really talked about climate change. And this is probably a good way to end mm. this, Tim. Mm. You know, I do describe in some detail, going back to the 70s, actually, um, quickly in my book, uh, how uh, the US and the EU were out of sync with each other for a long time. First, the US w- was leading, in fact, in those years on ozone issues. And then we separated paths under the Bush years and so forth. Then under Obama, fast forward, we had Cop- the disaster of Copenhagen. And under eight years, we were more or less in sync and we co-sponsored, we co-led, and we together got an achievement. We, we got the Paris Accords over the line. And now, of course, four years we've lost. Now, we have an opportunity, we have a window now of incredibly, incredible importance to work together with the Chinese. You saw Xi Jinping's recent statement about you know, uh, capping out um, carbon emissions and to be carbon neutral by 2060. We have an opportunity to go back to the table. And uh, and in fact, we're going to have to make our uh, objectives even more ambitious because we have a deeper hole to dig out of. This, I would put as issue probably number one, together with dealing with China, saving the planet together, US and the EU, we are core essential partners in getting that done. Okay. Well, uh, today, Tony Gardner and I have been discussing his book, Stars with Stripes, published by Paul Grove Macmillan. Tony, thank you very much for, for coming onto the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim.